again. The parable of the ten virgins this morning. And you will find that over in the 25th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, and I will be reading verses 1 through 13. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five of them were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. And as the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. I was talking with a colleague this week, and as it typically goes, the weekend approaches, and people see, what are you doing this weekend? And I always make it a point when I'm preaching to say, I'm preaching, so maybe we'll get a little spiritual conversation going. And so the person said, but what are you preaching on? And I said, the parable of the ten virgins. He says, does anyone really think you're going to find ten virgins somewhere? I, I had nowhere to go. I had nowhere to go. I was, we just wasn't ready for that, you know. You're preparing your mind, how am I going to handle this response and that response? And you're expecting a right hook, and you get an uppercut. Well, of all the domesticated animal species, few enjoy the status of faithful companion to the measure that dogs are well known for. In 1923, Hatsuburo Uneo, a professor at the University of Toko, Tokyo, I'm sorry, adopted an Akita Inu puppy, naming him Akiko. And each day the two would walk to the train station together where Uneo would pet the dog goodbye. Akiko, though, would stay at the train station waiting for his master to return, and they would then walk home together. And that curious and wonderful dog-human bond was sadly cut short when two years later, Heitsuburo suffered a brain hemorrhage while at work and never came home. Nonetheless, Akiko continued to wait at the train station every day for nine years for his master to return, earning the title Faithful Dog, by those who knew him. And finally, at the age of 11, Akiko died of natural causes. His body was preserved and placed in the National Science Museum of Japan in Tokyo. A monument of Akiko was placed in the cemetery next to his owner's grave. And a bronze statue was erected at Shibuya Station, where he spent all those days waiting for his master's return. And the entrance, the entrance to the station nearest the statue was named Akiko Guki, or the Hikiko entrance exit. And at last, a train line was named after him as well. In 1994, the Culture Broadcasting Network in Japan went to huge length to lift a recording of Hikiko's voice from a broken record. On May 28th of that year, millions of people tuned, tuned in to hear Hikiko bark. 
59 years after his death, a testament to his continuing popularity and cultural significance. Now, perhaps to us, that seems a bit of fuss to make over a dog, especially you weird cat people. <laughs> but, but, what's, but what's really being memorialized, what's really being memorialized in this story is the faithfulness and devotion of that dog to his master. It's commendable. In Japanese culture, loyalty and family love are supreme virtues, and Akiko was the canine embodiment of those virtues. Perhaps I should have titled this sermon, Be Akiko. A watchful eagerness for the Lord's return is the main lesson of the parable of the ten virgins. Jesus, as in many of his parables, chose a typical event in the daily lives of the Jewish people of his time. The rituals included in the parable were well known to the hearers and the lesson would not have been lost on them. The the foolish virgins were not prepared to meet the groom. And in that culture, to be invited and not be prepared for the meeting was an insult to the host of the wedding feast. And we'll get into all those details. Jesus' parables typically accompanies the his teaching on major doctrines. So anytime he had a particular major doctrine he was teaching on, in his grace, he would also give a parable. And in this case, it is his teaching on the second and final coming in judgment that entails. In chapter 24, Jesus is teaching about the coming of the Son of Man. And I don't intend to cover the entire Olivet Discourse in chapters 24 through 25, which is the full treatise that Jesus gave to his disciples on the Mount of Olives concerning his return. That's the title of the popular title of that, the Olivet Discourse. But let's look at a few verses so that we get a sense of the setting for this parable. Over in chapter 24, I'm just going to read verses 30 to 31 and then verses 42 to 44. So over in chapter 24, verse 30, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. And then over in uh, 42 through 44, a few verses down. Therefore, Stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not expect. So so Jesus is coming back. Be ready. And Expect unexpected timing. Now, over in the 25th chapter, when we get into the the chapter of the final judgment, I'll read verses just 31 through 33 there as well. After that parable, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will place the sheep on the right, but the goats on the left. So Jesus' return 
in judgment. Let me just give you verse 46 as well. He says, and these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So you consistently see those two contrasts as Jesus often did, the sheep and the goat, the wheats and the tares, those that are going to go into eternal punishment and the righteous that are going to go into eternal life. So Jesus' return and the judgment are two coinciding events. And sandwiched in between those two major doctrines are two parables. The ten virgins, which focuses on watchfulness and true devotion, and the parable of the talents, which follows, which focuses on faithfulness and diligence. And both parables feature the sudden, albeit considerably delayed appearance of the key figure, which is a metaphor for Jesus in these parables. And the panicked response of those who were not faithful and whose hearts were not genuine upon the return of the master in both of those parables. A few comments on the use of parables and how students of Scripture should approach this style of teaching. We don't use parables much in American culture. A TikTok video is not a parable. We like stories that are full of metaphors for great truth, right? We, we revel in the epic movies like, you know, Lord of the Rings or, or Harry Potter, if you're one of those wicked people that watch Harry Potter. And I, I do. And, and other fantasy genre films, we love those, as well as, as, well as like science fiction, right? Star Wars, okay? But, but those are not parables, they're, they're long and they feature developed characters and, and subplots, which you can make identifying the singular focus a, a little bit daunting. But they are mostly allegorical. Okay? But, but to tell a short, pithy story with one major point in a way that accesses the socio-cultural sensibilities of the contemporary audience with unavoidable impact is a form of genius. And it was the common teaching style of many rabbis, none so potent as Rabboni Jesus. Also, one must not turn the supplemental details of the parables into individual points of destruction. Um, of, of, of destruction. That's what happens when you put doctrine and destruction together and get the wrong thing. You get destruction. For example, in the parable of the ten virgins, some have suggested that the oil is a metaphor for the Holy Spirit. But that idea quickly falls apart when you consider that the foolish virgins had some oil but ran out and had to buy more, right? So a person doesn't get some of the Holy Spirit, and they certainly don't run out of the Holy Spirit. They may grieve the Holy Spirit. But in the parable, the reason, the reason that the foolish virgins didn't have sufficient oil is what is the key to unlocking the meaning of the parable. So we don't get hung up in, in various parables, you'll, you'll hear sometimes those kinds of things. A parable typically has a singular point. And if you happen to miss the point of a parable during the telling of it, well, that point is commonly restated at the very end. It is in this one, it is in the, in the next one. So in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus concludes a few parables by declaring, just so, right? As in the parable of the sheep, the lost sheep. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous who have no need of repentance. Or perhaps just a little differently, with the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, Jesus concludes, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, 
but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Just in case you missed the point of the parable. By use of his, par- of his parables, Jesus would, he would disarm the audience who would perhaps otherwise be prone to missing the lesson. Parables can disarm people. And they do so because I don't know if you've ever noticed that at times when you try to persuade somebody of your position, but they're defending a different point of view, they're more interested in defending their point of view and what they're going to say next than in hearing what your logic is for your point of view. It's just our human nature. Very few of us really want to understand the other person's point of view. It's just a little subtext for you. You know, we, we listen, all right? But, but with a parable, the lesson sort of sneaks in before it can be resisted. It just comes at you when you don't expect it. So it's a, it is a gracious form of teaching. Now, to the cultural setting of the parable, in the wedding ritual, the bridegroom, or groom as we call him, would lead a procession from his home to the home of the bride. And once there, he would place the bride on a donkey and they would go parading through the streets together to the cheering and applause of the rest of the community, making their way through the streets back to the groom's house where the wedding feast would take place with all of the invited guests. The virgins would wait with the bride and they would be part of the procession back to the feast. In this story, the wedding was either taking place at night or there was some anticipation that it would go well into the the evening, hence the need for lamps, or more likely is the torches, uh, which are fueled, of course, by oil. And the parable features ten women. And that number is interesting. It has meaning. One scholar commented that ten Jewish men were required for Passover feasts. And ten Jewish men were required for a wedding to be legitimate. He continues, the worth of women is clearly affirmed by the composition of the story. Well, it sounds just like something Jesus would do. Also, the church is known as the Bride of Christ in the book of Revelation and throughout Scripture, uh, which book also features the marriage supper of the Lamb. So with those helpful points, you get the most out of the parable. And Jesus begins with, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like. When? Well, upon the return of Jesus. That's when Jesus returns in the kingdom of heaven This is what it will look like. And so the first thing we ought to ask ourselves, and we do this, is, well, what is the kingdom of heaven? It's not a nebulous phrase we shouldn't get too concerned about, not understanding it. It's it's pretty thorough in Scripture. But you may have heard me reference from my teaching and my preaching, uh, the Bible Project, uh, because their doctrine and their teaching are really good, and they have animated videos on biblical themes and books of the Bible, which are short and very useful. In their animated and narrated video, Heaven and Earth, which is about six minutes long, Tim Mackey says, yeah, so a few times in the New Testament we learn that Christians will be with Jesus in heaven after they die. But that's not the focus of the Bible story. The focus is on how heaven and earth are being reunited through Jesus and will be completely brought together one day when he returns. That's what the Bible is all about. So that is the then of verse 1 when Jesus comes back. And the kingdom of heaven is basically where God's plan is fully consummated. His reign is unchallenged. Rebellion is unknown. And in the prophet, the prophetic uh, refrain of Habakkuk, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. That's the kingdom of heaven among us. 
And the rest of the parable describes what the kingdom of heaven will be like when Jesus returns. So it isn't that the kingdom of heaven is like ten virgins and it just sort of stops there, okay? It's not like the kingdom of heaven is just five and, and, uh, wise and five foolish virgins. It's about a separation. It's about a distinction exposed between who is and who is not a true disciple of Jesus, who will and who will not be at the marriage supper of the Lamb, and why. Okay? And why. And so, therefore, this parable is for every generation, from then till now and to the end of the age. Every Sunday in America and elsewhere, churches fill up with a mix of genuine and false disciples of Jesus. And there could possibly be both in here this morning. There are five foolish virgins, and there are five wise virgins. And they had some things in common, didn't they? They had some things in common. The most obvious is that all ten are invited. So all ten of these virgins are invited to the wedding. They mean something to the host. They've been invited. Every single person that hears the gospel has been given a great blessing by God. John the Baptist came preaching, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus preached, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When Jesus sent out the 72 disciples and told them to proclaim, The kingdom of heaven is at hand, or the kingdom of heaven has come near to you. At Pentecost, after Jesus' ascension, Peter declares, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. The history of the church in Acts is the story of the apostles and others calling sinners to faith, to follow Jesus. That is what it is to invite to the great wedding feast. And many respond. There are foolish and there are wise. All ten virgins each took oil with them. Right? They all had something. In his book, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, Ken Bailey says their reputation, in some cases their personal safety, depends on the lamps. After all, these are ten young virgins. For young unmarried women to move about in the dark without carrying lamps is unthinkable. What might they be doing in the dark and with whom? Because that's human nature as well, to just assume the worst of people. Right? We can assume that all ten virgins had some level of devotion to the bridegroom and to the bride. That they were, they were sensible enough to take their lamps and to go meet the bridegroom, as the text states. Again, we look over the entire panoply of history since the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and we see many people that have thought very well of Jesus. Uh, he's been ex- extolled as a, as a great moral teacher. He is highly revered as a prophet in the religion of Islam. I've, I've worked with a, a Muslim, and he has a great things to say about Esau. Gandhi spoke highly of Jesus, as do many religions. The Wiccan religion has a lot to say about Jesus. In fact, you can go to their website and find out what Jesus really said, <laughs> which is not what Jesus really said. 
And we have all seen people come and go in churches, haven't we? We have seen people that we thought were devoted, committed followers of Jesus Christ. They seem like real disciples. We've seen church members and we've seen pastors. Pastors fall as well. And, and, and we wonder, how is that possible? How did that guy that was preaching that way end up in that place at that time? Or why did that friend of mine walk away? Or, or, or my children? Why did my children, they seem so faithful. Man, they seemed into it. Man, they were raising their arms up at Camp Impact. They were singing. They were confessing their sin. You know, they were jubilant. They were playing all the goofy sets full of games. They were, they were there, man. They were into it. You know, and then there's nothing new. In his first epistle, John writes, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. Now, that doesn't mean the people we know that have sort of strayed aren't coming back. John happened to know this in particular about these people, but it is also quite possible that the reason why they went out is they were never part. Paul said to the Thessalonians, Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men for not all have faith in the churches of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the third verse, Jesus says, The foolish took their lamps, but they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with them, so they took extra oil. Why would Jesus call the virgins without oil foolish? Well, it can only be that it is most reasonable to expect that anyone who wanted to honor the bridegroom would obviously be prepared to meet him and to not want to miss out. The book of Proverbs is often a contrast between uh, the foolish and the wise. And it's, it's, you glean as you go through Proverbs, it becomes obvious that the fools are the ones that act completely contrary to how they ought to act. You know, so... So the wicked fall seven times and they, and, they, and they get up again. They go on. But the fools go on to destruction. And this whole proverb after proverb of those little comparisons going on. We get the sense that the original audience hearing the parable would be immediately thinking to themselves, who responds to such an invitation with that lack of seriousness? It probably came as a surprise to many of the people hearing this that's crazy. Who would do that, right? Who would do that? Jesus obviously used the obvious in his parables. Who would do that? Who would go out to a wedding? Who would, who would be called? What virgin in her right mind would be summoned to a wedding feast and go out and not be prepared like that? And then something else they have in common. Verse, verse 5, all ten virgins fall asleep, right? As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. And so they all fell asleep. But that should not have come as a surprise entirely. In that culture and time, bridegrooms were often late, Craig Keener writes. Bridegrooms were often late, and their comings were repeatedly announced until they arrived. I remember in these cultures, too, I mean, people weren't so hung up on time and everything. You know, they just, 
they just partied and took their time and enjoyed each other, you know, and they were like just couldn't get enough of one another. So the virgins anticipated that they may fall asleep, the wise ones, and they were prepared for that, right? Now, falling asleep may not have been the most desirable response uh, to the delay, but it was certainly much later than expected. You know, don't forget, people didn't have things to do in the dark in those days, you know, uh, evil. You could do evil. They didn't sit around watching television or go for a drive to Dunkin' Donuts to have a coffee to keep them awake a little while longer, right? Just to pass the time. You know, the human body in those circumstances was far more acclimated to what we call the, the circadian sleep rhythm, right? It's just the, the cycle of sleep and awake that corresponds best to regular patterns of light and darkness. You know, in the 17 and 1800s, you can read literature, and in that literature, you'll see common reference to the fact that people typically, they might have gone to bed at 8 or 9 o'clock, but they woke up at 1 o'clock, and they were awake for an hour or two. And then you'd see reference in the literature of the day, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, to second sleep. First sleep and second sleep. It was just, it was just natural. Okay? Now, that's all messed up because, you know, electricity came along, and we've got lights. and so. But people would get up, and they would pray, or couples might wake up and pray and do something else. And, you know, of course, it'd be the people that know that you can commit crime in the dark, I suppose. So, you know, people didn't, people just weren't the same as we are in that way. And it's difficult sometimes to throw yourself into another culture, which is why you try to ex- explain and understand the culture sort of as much as you possibly can. Uh, so people, there was just no practical reason. So it, it's not that weird that somebody would fall asleep just sort of sitting around waiting in the dark. For the wise, though, the invitation and participation in the feast was important enough. Their, their connection to the bridegroom was such that they did what was necessary to be prepared for the unexpected. Okay, They didn't want to miss it. They knew they had enough oil to get where they were going. They needed more than that. Okay, You certainly didn't want to fall asleep with your lamp not burning. It'd be a lot easier to commit some offense against you. But it does feel at times, though, doesn't it? Does it feel at times when reflecting upon it that Jesus' return is delayed? You know, we wonder how much worse a thing's going to get in the world. And I must tell you, about 12 hours after I wrote what I just said, it struck me that things are so bad should really rate a, a distant second on the church's list of reasons to why we would return uh, along for the return of Jesus. That should be way down second on the list. It will, of course, be great to see the collapse of all things opposed to God and to his Christ and to his kingdom. Brothers and sisters, Jesus may suddenly appear on an otherwise ordinary day in our lifetime. We... We may be walking up a flight of stairs or, or driving to the grocery store or folding laundry, and all at once he will be there face-to-face. Some years ago, uh, we wanted to surprise our daughter Sarah with a visit from her friend Jen, who had moved away like six months earlier, her best friend. And we didn't tell her she was coming. So we, we had Jen wait in the living room, and we called our Sarah from the other room. So she walked in around the corner and she saw Jen and she was just like speechless and momentarily like paralyzed, you know, followed by all the hugging and the tears and the laughter, right? You, uh, go on YouTube uh, sometime and look up videos of 
soldiers returning from overseas, right, to surprise a spouse or a child or, you know, a parent. You know, how much more when Jesus, in the blink of an eye, is here and we are immediately changed into his likeness. Now, I am a hokey southern gospel music loving guy. I used to go to the Gaither concerts. And let me tell you something. When you were in a, when you were in a, a hall filled with five or 6,000 people singing, What a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see. And they're walking up and down the aisles. And I look upon his face, that one that saved me by his grace. When he takes me by the hand and leads me through the promised land. Anyone else know it? What a day, glorious day that will be. That's why that song was written. People sitting around contemplating the return of Jesus. And just, again, to be in a, to see these big old age chubby Christians up there singing at these Southern Baptists and there's sweat pouring off them. Man, these people are looking for Jesus to come back. Just don't do enough of that stuff. According to Scripture, we're not really allowed to have our thoughts despair or question why Jesus hasn't returned yet. We're to intentionally anticipate Jesus' return. The only time we hear about the delay of Jesus is from Peter. And he does not commend people questioning that delay. Rather, he acknowledges that there are yet more to come to repentance. The heavenly roster is not yet full. There's still some blank lines on there. People you know, Brother Mark and Paul and Seth and Ron, and people you know and care about, you know, your children. There's still room. There's still room on the list. Yeah, I want to see Jesus face to face. I want more people to see him too. And as Jesus says in another parable, we are to occupy until he comes. So we must conclude that anticipation of his return is what motivates us to pursue his interest here and now. Okay? So in some ways, we're all on a John the Baptist assignment, aren't we? Preparing the way for the Lord, empowered by the Spirit to subdue the earth and have dominion over it, the original human assignment. On a Saturday before small group, we vacuum up the dog hair. We clean the toilets. We get the spare chairs up from downstairs in the basement, right? We get what we need for food and drink. You know, the future arrival fuels our efforts in the present to make ready for a wonderful time in the Lord. The future arrival fuels us to make ready in the present. The church must do that on a global scale. In the parable of the talents, which follows this parable, you can see the excitement of those of the master when he entrusts his talents. He gives to one ten, he gives to one five. And the master returns, and at least someone will say, Lord, look what I did with the talent you gave me. You gave me five, I got ten to give back to you. And they're all excited. Well, you can't just suddenly, you have to maintain that level of anticipation for a while. They're investing in that, and they're seeing it happen. Like all other things, our mortal bodies and minds, though redeemed, do not do this perfectly. At times we fall asleep. We get sluggish. But thank God we have one another to pick up the slack 
and get each other excited again about the return of the king. Now, the, I think the big questions we want to ask of these virgins and the same questions we want to ask ourselves is, why were they not prepared with oil? Why were they not prepared? The difference between them, the difference between the, the wise virgins and the foolish virgins, in keeping with what I just said, is 2 Thessalonians 1.10 and 2 Timothy 4.8. So 2 Thessalonians 1.10 reads, Let me go back a verse to 9. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at, to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was, was, was believed. And then in 2 Thessalonians 4, 8, I got the wrong address there. Second Timothy four eight. I'm sorry. Second Timothy four eight. I blame my post-it note. Henceforth, Paul saying to Timothy, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. You see, those who loved his first appearing will marvel at his second appearing. There's a correlation between the desire and affection and devotion we have for Jesus now and the fully sanctified marvel when at last we see him. See, the reason the foolish virgins didn't have oil is that they didn't have the same fervor and zeal that the wise virgins had. The wise virgins proactively did what was needful to honor the groom and have the desire to be his guest at the wedding fulfilled. This was constantly on their thoughts. Their anticipation determined their preparation. Their anticipation determined their preparation. And it behooves us to ask ourselves the question, where do thoughts of Jesus' return fit into our own meditations and reflections? Even our sharing our faith, you know, when, when you get an opportunity to share the gospel, how often does it include the return of Jesus? When Paul confronted the pagans on Mars Hill, he filled in all the details of their, quote, unknown God, to whom they constructed a monument to, and he also told them God has fixed a day when the resurrected Jesus will come to judge. I think about this approach sometimes. There's a way to use this. We don't do it. I think of, I think of, I, I sort of have this little secret fantasy of, at our school committee meetings, they allow people to have, they allow a three-minute a, a, a public, you know, public input segment where a person has three minutes to go up and share their thoughts. And I thought, you know, in a sermon I preached before, we talked about part of our, Commitment out there is to, just, is to just tell people about the lordship of Jesus Christ. You know, sort of that, where did you get the idea that that is okay? Where does that come from? Where does your moral sensibility come from? And should it come from there, right? But there's a part of me that envisions standing there. And so there's, you know, there's a policy that says that children as young as 10 years old can have their own pronouns. 
and the school doesn't have to let the parent know about it if the child doesn't want their parent to know about it. That's the law in Massachusetts, period. Okay, you can look up in Ludlow, Massachusetts, some parents, there was a, um, I don't want to get bogged down on this, but just to make the point in, in keeping with what I'm saying, there was uh, a school librarian that gave an assignment to do a video biography, and this provocatively said, you can use a gender other than the one you were born with if that's who you are. And so the parents brought them to court, and they lost, and the judge in the case cited a Massachusetts law and said, and said, and said that the child's right to be who they think they are supersedes the parent's right to know. And so there's a part of me that wants to stand there and, and say, there is a day coming when you will stand in judgment before Jesus Christ, who has risen from the dead, and you are going to have to give an answer as to why you didn't let a parent know their 10-year-old was struggling with this and why three or four years from now they may go and have a double mastectomy or castrate themselves. You are going to stand before God and answer that. And you'll be laughed at and mocked, right? You need to stop and you need to turn away from that right now. It's a good fantasy. I'd like to live that out. Right? Or, or to stand, Brother Ron, outside that abortion clinic, and as the person comes out, says, Do you know, Planned Parenthood director, you are going to stand in the judgment before Jesus Christ? You might be able to tweet out a crude response to me. You might be able to give a TikTok video insulting me and putting me down, but Jesus Christ is going to take as much time as he wants judging you, and you will shut up when he does. good to be in scripture about the return of Jesus today. <laughs> I think it's a direct result of the spirits moving in our body here at Sovereign Grace Chapel to pray more. I think that's where Gary's inclination to have some sort of message about false belief, etc. I think that's where it came from. Some months ago, we started posting prayers in the bulletin periodically for the new building, and then we started posting them for the pastoral search committee. And, and, then, and then Jeannie approached the elders recently and said, hey, can we have a meeting each week in the back, a prayer meeting, and then the fundraising committee, right? And then the missions committee yesterday had an hour of prayer. See, prayer will excite your spiritual sensibilities about the return of Jesus. We study scripture, we sing, we fellowship, we, we rail against the sins out in the public, whether it's the transgender thing or the abortion thing, and we provide help and support. We don't just warn them about judgment. We provide support. We care for the poor. These are all things we do as followers of Jesus. And each of those spiritual disciplines, disciplines I'm sorry, contributes to our longing for Jesus to finally and fully come and tabernacle among us. Why wouldn't it? I, I think... I wonder if Jesus, hearing our voices, also adds to his anticipation of seeing us. Seriously. Why wouldn't that? Well, why wouldn't he? He, he? That's why, pray out loud when you pray. Yeah, you can just pray in your head, but once in a while, pray out loud and let him hear your voice so he can look forward to seeing you. Verse 10, when Jesus returns... Verse 10 in the text is, And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. 
When Jesus returns, the door to fellowship with Jesus, the purpose for which we were created, is permanently closed. That door seals two separate and very different irreversible states of affair. Revelation 22, 14 to 15. That one's easy to find. It's right at the end of your Bible. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates outside of the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 10. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And perhaps most importantly for us, and such were some of you, <laughs> because I was probably every, you know, in one way or another, almost every one of those. You were washed and you were justified, right? People that are eager for the return of Jesus are not characterized by persistent unrepentant sin, period. Because persistent sin compromises joyful anticipation of Jesus' second coming. We would all do well to search ourselves and see if there are things distracting us from our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the door was shut. What was it shut to? It was to be on the other side. The door is shut to pain. The door is shut to sin. The door is shut to self and to death and to suffering and to doubts into depression, into anxiety, into fear about death, into hatred, into divisions, and everything ugly introduced in the fall by Adam and Eve and repeated by each one of us. Inside that door, an agape feast with Jesus that never ends. Not for the unbelieving. And the foolish virgins shout through the door, Lord, Lord, open to us. But the time of honoring the Lord has passed. Now is the consequence. Now is the judgment. Now are the horrible words, truly I say to you, I don't know you. We never had more than a very superficial relationship. We were not intimate. You had no singular devotion to me. I was not your best thought by day or by night. Waking or sleeping, my presence was not your light. It doesn't matter that they called him Lord, Lord. They honored him with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. Back in chapter 7 of the same gospel, we see something similar. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, they cast out demons in Jesus' name. They did mighty works in Jesus' name. They prophesied in Jesus' name. Some of them probably ended their prayers in Jesus' name. Jesus said to them, depart from me. I never knew you. And Henriksen says, trembling with fear, they pronounced the title, Lord, Lord, with awe and reverence, pouring into it far more meaning than they had ever done before the arrival of this crisis of deepest despair. Therefore, watch, verse 13. You know neither the day or the hour. 
always be prepared. There are no special clues. There are signs of the time. We see those signs always. People falling away, wars and rumors of wars, the love of money, I'm sorry, the love of many growing cold, people being lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of God but denying its, its power. We are in the last days and have been in the last days for 2,000 years. And what is watching but everything I have been preaching on? It is being a Kiko. It is adoration of Jesus. It is devotion to Jesus. It is the spiritual disciplines of service and prayer and Bible reading and fellowship. Peter wrote that there's a connection to watching. You want want Jesus to come back sooner (laughs) than later? Peter wrote that there's a connection to watching and living godly lives in the return of Christ. A good Bible on it. Chapter 3, verses 10 to 12. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth will, and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, watching for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire, etc.? watching for and hastening. The church can hasten the day of the Lord. We play, only God knows the day, but the church plays a part in the timing. It's, it's still God's sovereign decree, yet we are told we can shorten the duration of waiting. I don't know how. It's a wonderful promise, though. Perhaps you've been to a concert or two in your life. If so, you likely have the experience, the delayed encore of the band, after they disappear off stage for a little while, so after they've played their their last song from the last set, and they go backstage, right? Now, the band knows full well they're going to come out for an encore, and they know how long they're going to wait. And some of the audience leaves, hoping to beat traffic in the long lines, right? But the diehard fans remain, are flicking their bicks, right? They're, They're waving their cell phone flashlights, right? And they start slowing and and they're cheering and then they get more and more excited and they get rhythmic clapping and shouting and stomping their feet. And suddenly the band appears on stage and and everyone just freaks out, right? Now I suppose in a sense, as we close, if you'll bear with me a little bit of sanctified silliness, that Jesus has gone backstage and the pause between his first and second advent So let's be those diehard fans. The fair-weather fans, the ones who like Jesus and and kind of like church, for whom the Christian virtues and ethics resonate, they aren't sticking around making noise and applauding. They've left their building. And once that door closes, you're not getting back in. But are you looking forward to the encore? You got enough lighter fluid. (laughs) You got enough charge in your battery flashlight, Right? Our prayers, our scripture reading, our singing, our meditations, our devotions, our zealously done works, zealously done good works, these are the cheering and foot stomping that say, come Lord Jesus. That's the way we stomp and cheer for Christ to return, is by that obedience, by that scripture reading, that singing, all the wonderful things we do. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come back on stage. Brethren, I exhort you to renew in your mind the truth of the return of our Lord Jesus. Let it infect you. Pray for anticipation. Seek out that excitement. 
I tell you, we must have it. May God the Holy Spirit sanctify and energize our resolve to do so. Amen. Let's pray. Unless the music comes forward. In the end of the book of the Revelation, we see that even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And we, in some sense, do find ourselves in a strait betwixt two places. We long for your return, and we also long for others to be ready to meet you on that day. So help us always, Lord, to see and think more clearly about your return and what that means. If this may not be something that we're accustomed and acclimated ourselves to, it's lots of things we do, but help us to talk more and think more about your return. It just makes good sense to us, Lord, that, that the one that we talk to, whose voice we hear in Scripture, who we imagine, we look upon you in our imaginations on your crucified body. We look upon you in your gloriously raised body. We want to see that day. We long for that day, Lord, when I do believe we'll each get to hug you and feel your beard against our face and maybe there'll still be some smell of alabaster ointment in your hair. But we look forward to it. Help us to be more mindful of it and so that that guides our life a little bit better. We receive our worship and song now. Love.